0: Welcome to Cooper Talk, presented by Walk My Mind. Bring your body, bring your mind. This is Walk My Mind, a holistic approach to wellness that connects the dots of physical, mental, and emotional Health. health. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and I'm only as Hip is my guest, and we have a great show today. A friend of mine is going to come in, and talk about his career, talk about a very uh, important hashtag he's working on uh, to get awareness about a big problem taking over the country. And my guest is Tony Luke Jr. How you doing, Tony?
1: Hey, CB, how are you, buddy? I'm
0: good. I'm good. Now it's funny. We we're saying now. You said you uh, the winters are the winters are getting to you out here. So you you grew up in the Philadelphia area. Have you been? You lived in L.A. for a while, though, didn't you?
1: I did not. I, I when, when I was 17, I went to L.A. Figured I was going to live there and start my career as an actor there. And then I got into some trouble like one month in and everyone thought it would be better if I went back to the film. So, my first experience at LA was a little rocky.
0: Now, you said you wanted to be an actor. When did you decide you wanted to get into acting? And I know you do some music. Was it a young age, or at what point did you start following, try to follow that path?
1: Uh, I mean, As far back as I can remember, I mean, eight, nine, 10. I was always fascinated with film and TV. Uh, always fantasized about being different people, doing different things, you know. And I remember going to school. It was actually high school, my first year at Bishop Newman. Uh, I was asked to leave. I was not a very nice kid. Like, I got into a lot of trouble. And freshman year, they kind of gave me the boot, and I was working. I uh, didn't want to go back to school. I was only, I was I was just turned 15. And I thought, you know what, I'm not going to go back to school, I'm just going to go to work. And there was an ad in the paper for aud- auditions for a brand new school that was opening up called the Creative and Performing Arts. And I thought, you know what, I always want to be an actor and a singer and a songwriter. Like, I love the entertainment business, I'll go audition. And there were thousands of kids showed up. I didn't think I had any chance of getting in, because they were only taking a few that very first year that they opened. But I got a letter in the mail that said I got it, and that, that changed my life forever.
0: Now, how was that looked upon upon your family? Because I know your father was a very hard worker, and your neighborhood was a tough neighborhood. And, you know, we're around the same age. People just, you know, and I grew up in Cherry Hill, and which was, you know, not a rough area, but people just weren't used to. Guys acting—it was very weird. I mean, how did that get accepted in the uh, in, in let's say your neighborhood? The people like, go, what the hell is Tony doing acting? Or what, what do they think?
1: Well, you know what, the neighborhood wasn't bad. You know, my my father wasn't too thrilled about it. You know, he never liked the idea of. Well, not that he didn't like it. You know, let me rephrase that because that's not fair to him. You know, he was very set in his ways with certain things, and he believed that. You know, if you wanted a good life and you wanted to make money, you worked. Like, physical work. And I guess, you know, every father wants his son to have at least as much as him. And to him, the idea of acting or writing or singing was ridiculous. It was a far-fetched fantasy that would accomplish nothing. That would probably keep me broke my entire life. So he never looked at it with any value. That, that would be another good way to say it, too. To him, it was just a game, and it had no value to it whatsoever other than just wasting time, which obviously I completely disagreed with, and I pursued that, and I still pursue it. I, You know, I still do the acting. I still do the songwriting and the singing and the entertainment. I love it. I always did. It's part of who I am, and I don't ever see myself not doing it. So... I mean, that'll be a part
0: of me until I die. Well, I think also for, you know, your other ventures, you know, whether it be hosting on TV and stuff like that, I think your acting background helps you because you already have a mindset. You know what it takes. You have the chops. I mean, you getting in front and hosting something on a TV show is probably so easy to you because you've been to auditions, you know, you've worked as an actor. So it must be something that it's probably very refreshing and it's actually mending two
1: of your worlds. You know, I I, I will tell you, I always felt very at home in front of a camera. I don't know why. I just i felt like I belonged there, like this wasn't something that was unusual. You know, I know it's crazy, but it's true. Like, because most people don't like to be under the microscope or in front of the camera because it is, it's intimidating, you know. You know people are going to judge you for whatever, but I never... You know, I never felt that way. You know, I, that that adrenaline kind of pumps me up, you know, a lot. And I just, I do what I do, you know, and I enjoy it. When I stop enjoying it is when I'll stop doing it. But it really helped also in the formation and the success of the business of Tony Loops. Because, you know, we opened up a steak shop, and I've said this before, in a city with a 1,000 sandwich shops. And why come to us? I mean, there were people that had great food and great sandwiches all over the city, and we were kind of really out of the way. People think it's a great location. It's a great location now because it was so successful. It drew a lot of people into that area, but that was a horrible location. Nobody wanted that location. It was at the end of Oregon Avenue, it was near the train tracks, it was it was not good. I mean, it was just an out-of-the-way spot that no one but truckers would ever drive to. But I used the idea of, of entertainment and creating these really ridiculous, uh, but I have to tell you, they were very cutting edge back in the day. I remember calling up Prism at the time and asked them to come down and shoot a commercial that we wanted to put on cable, for this store, and I remember telling them what I wanted, and they were like, well, we can't do that. And I'm like, what do you mean? They were like, well, you're shooting a, a commercial for a food establishment, yes? And I said, yeah. They're like, but you're not highlighting any food. I said, I know. Yeah, but nothing about it is for food. I said, yeah, I know. <laughs> and they were like, well, we won't do that. I'm like, well, I'm not asking your permission. I'm paying you Just shoot the commercial the way I want it. And they really thought I was crazy. And those commercials truly propelled Tony Luke's into the eye and consciousness of people in Philadelphia because they were so different that people were talking about those commercials, even when they weren't hungry. So subliminally, if you're talking about someone all the time, when you get hungry and you go, wait, Tony Luke's, is that, is that a sandwich shop? I, I think it's a sandwich shop. I'm not sure from the commercial, but that, you know, and then you get curious and you go. And I believe that that, that acting background and just the creative thinking in the entertainment vibe other than just the restaurant tour vibe, I think made a big impact with the studio to get us to the kind of recognition, you know, that we were looking for.
0: Now I wasn't living back here then. What were the commercials about? I mean, what made them so different and what made, and what made you really just think that in that special direction?
1: Well, they weren't about food. Like, I I remember watching cable back then. And it was, you know, just really clicking. And, you know, everyone would advertise on local cable. And it was like, I'll make up a a commercial that was normal back then. Welcome to Mama's Pizzeria. You know, there's Mama and here's Mama. She's throwing gravy. And this is her son, Bob, and her daughter, Gina, and Mama and her kids make fresh crazy every day. And they're made, and they show a guy making pizza and flipping it in the air, and they cut a slice. Come to Mama's on Broad Street. We're open between... And I'm like, I ain't doing that, because <laughs> that's ridiculous. It's boring, and everyone doesn't. I remember when I went to them for the first commercial, they're like, well, what is the commercial about? And I said, it's about two convicts that are on a chain gang. And one of them... Gets parole in one week, but he can't wait because they're near Tony Luke's where they got him doing construction. And he literally breaks rank, escapes, just to get a Tony Luke sandwich. Now, it's done like the Keystone Cops kind of shot, but you never saw anyone on the grill. You never saw a steak being made. You see me run to the window, grab the sandwich, go sit down as I'm ready to eat it. The cops come. And they grabbed grab me by my shoulder. And then there's my son, who was my youngest son, Joey. And he's pleading, Dad, why'd you do it? Why'd you break parole? You know, and my tagline was, it's obvious you never ate at Tony Luke's before. And, and they were like, what is this? Like, this is not a food commercial. And I'm like, just run it. And people caught on. And the next commercial was one called "Forest Luke. And it was me, literally, sitting on a bench in a, in a, in a park next to a transvestite who was asking me about life and I said life is like Tony Luke's instead of a box of chocolate you might not always know what you want but whatever you get you know it'll be good and I get up and I run really strangely into a tree and (laughs) knock myself out while the transvestite is laughing none of these were food commercials but everyone went bananas over these commercials and everyone was like what is this place who is this lunatic On TV, and what does transvestites on a bench mocking Forrest Gump have to do with sandwiches? And they came. And then once they came, they enjoyed the food, and I got them to come back again and again and again. And then later on, one of the greatest compliments I think I've ever gotten, years later, a couple years later, after the commercials were really killing it, a uh, gentleman came to see me He said, hey, you know, I just came back from prison. I'm doing a commercial for one of my stores. I'm like, that's great. He said, I thought you should know that when they sit you down to tell you about commercials, they use your commercials as, you know, like as a forum to look at, like what you can do. And they fought me the entire, every single commercial. They fought me because I was crazy. They were just happy to take my money. But, you know, it was things like that that were different at the time.
0: Well, it's funny because you know you say about commercials you remember. And I, I always joke around with my friends about this, but you know, you being a Philly guy, you'll remember the crazy Crass brother commercials. I mean, I, oh yeah, everybody remembered them. Crass
1: yeah, you're, you're insane. And then the women were beating him up. Yeah, yeah, it's, it had yeah, nothing it to do
0: with the suit, but you sat there and you would, it would stick in your mind. And that's what happened with Tony. You Luke's. know, it's
1: funny though that you say that. Okay, it was Benny. It was Benny Crass, if I'm not mistaken on Crash Brothers Suits. Um, he was very instrumental. And remember he used to drive around with that yellow Rolls Royce? Yeah. It was a big convertible yellow Rolls Royce. Really? He was such a showman. But I, a lot of people know that he was very, very difficult in the start of the Philadelphia song of music.
0: Wait, what's that? I'm sorry, you, you cut out a little bit.
1: He was very instrumental in the Philadelphia music scene.
0: Oh, I didn't know that.
1: Yeah, most people don't. They just remember him with those crazy commercials, Crash Brothers, but he was very instrumental in the music scene back in the day, you know, for the Philadelphia Sound and just the whole music scene back then. But he was very theatrical. Yeah, very... And that kind of set him apart. You know, did he have the best suits in the world? You know, no. He had great suits and the best in the world. But the showmanship, the bigger-than-life figure drew people there like crazy
0: now with your commercials when you fir- when first when it first so let's say your place starts taking off when do you know it's time to branch out because that's always hard like a lot of times a restaurant will have a good thing and then you know my father used to always say oh they tried to expand too fast they tried to expand too fast and it hurts some people did you just have instinct or how did you decide to start opening new places because you, you end up opening a lot
1: I made a lot of mistakes in the beginning, um, opening up uh, too fast, so your father was right. Um, I knew that we had something, because the people that came to eat really enjoyed the food, like really enjoyed it. And I knew we weren't just running on just the popularity, that the popularity was there, and it drew people in. But the food backed up the hype. And I thought, this can work in other places. And it did. And then it didn't. You know, because you make mistakes. You don't know. I didn't know. No one knew. You know, we opened a place. It did really well. And then you kind of walk away and think that people are going to run it the way they should. And and it's going to be the same because you've taught them. And then they kind of do what they want. In the very first place we opened wind up closing in the second place I opened, wind up closing. You know, we made all these mistakes, you know, because it's growing pains. And do I regret opening up those stores and having to close them? No, because I learned so much from those closings. And then I in two thousand and five, you know, me and my father, my brother kinda of weren't eye to eye on on expanding. And um, you know, they signed the trademarks to me to go off and do, you know, to franchise. And I would kind of take care of that end, as well as doing all the stuff, you know, the promoting and everything for Front Street. Um, So I thought it was a great marriage, you know. I would continue to do what I was doing with Front Street and then take the burden off of them having to deal with opening up other stores and the finances behind opening other stores. And I partnered up with Ray Rostelli, and, you know, he financed those, those stores, and there was a learning process again, because franchising and licensing is different than owning a store. So all of it was, you know, open, close, open, close. You know, you learn. That's why when people come to me now and they go, hey, I heard you closed two stores, I'm proud to say yeah. People go, what do you mean? Why are you proud to say you closed, you know, two stores? Because they weren't doing it right. And if they're not doing it right, they can't stay open. I'm not going to destroy, you know, what was built because... They're not doing it correctly, so you know we go, we we check it, and if it ain't right, I close them down. And you know I have no shame in closing them down because it just proves over and over again that I'm more concerned about quality and getting the product out right than I am about just keeping a store open to collect the franchise fee, which I'm not. You know I want it has to be done correctly, and there's some great, you know, great stores and some not so great stores that we. You know, we closed, and we do what we have to do because quality is paramount. But you know, it helped launch us, and the promote, the promoting and the marketing still keeps that. You know, keeps you in the eye and doing what you're doing. But you know, opening up quickly is not a mistake. You know. It, it's a hard question to answer, Steve, because you can't learn unless you make mistakes. No one's born knowing anything. And don't be fooled that if you go to school and you get a degree in business, and, oh, I have a degree in business and management, that you're not going you know, to run into the same problems because you are. Because the best teacher in the world is to actually do something and deal with that. You know what I mean? So even people with an education still run into those problems. I wish I would have had more of an education maybe I might not have made the dumb mistakes that I made because I might have learned that in college or you know or in a business school which I never went to you know but in, in a whole I don't regret it you know it's a it's a growing and a learning experience
0: well what's amazing also about your place is as I said I had left before you guys were known and Joanne had talked to me about oh Tony Lukes so I remember you know we went to a Phillies game and I'm like oh yeah I get to try Tony Luke's. And I looked, and I was sitting there, oh, no, because I'm going to be in line for, like, four innings. Like, you guys had the longest line, all those food places. And that's when you sit there and you go, you know, you know they're doing something right. Because people don't stay in line for a name. You know what I mean? They stay in line because someone goes, that's a, that's a good sandwich. And, um, yeah, it was amazing to me. I was, like, now, I was like, this is unbelievable.
1: Yeah, I think it. But, honestly, I do think it's a little of both. I think people will stay in line for a name because they know it's something that they're familiar with. But you're right. I mean, it all goes down. I, I really believe it is a 50-50 balance. It truly is. I don't think great food can survive without either a great promoter or a great marketing plan or a, a, great, a, a great image. Uh, like, if you look at all your great brands... There was always somebody, you know, Dave Thomas from Wendy's and Ronald McDonald and, you know, uh, Colonel Sanders. There's always a, an image that people get to know and love, and that image or a person represents the quality and the taste that they're looking for. So I'll wait in line if, I, if it's a name that I know, as long as I'm not disappointed when I get to the other end of the line, because the name will get me in line. But the food will keep me coming back. So uh, they do work hand in hand. You need both. And especially today, more than ever, you need both. If you don't have a strong social media presence, if there's not someone to look at, if the brand doesn't have, like, if you even look at your insurance companies today, like, look at all your insurance, your Geico has has a, has a, a gecko you know what I mean? And progressive has that, I'm forgiving, I'm so bad with names, but the woman who's great as the progressive lady, like every, you know, we live in a society where people are going to go, okay, I know that person, or, or I, I knew that the image of that person, I know what that person stands for. And nameless, you know, companies now and restaurants, even small restaurants now, and everywhere you go, you know, the chefs, Forefront, right up front, or the owner's right up front because people want that personal touch now. That's what they want. And they should. Because, you know, when, you, when you're going somewhere, I always tell every, every employee that works with me, you know, and I tell them, hey, people can spend money anywhere they want. They absolutely do not have to spend it here. So please make sure when they walk in that door, you let them know the truth, which is you appreciate that they are there that you appreciate that they're spending their money and taking the time to come and see you. That's why no matter what I'm doing, if people come in, I always go, Hey, how you doing? Cause I truly appreciate that they're there because they can be anywhere else. There's a lot of food places that they can go to. And if they choose to come to one of, one of uh, my restaurants, I'm really honored. I really am. And I make sure that I go out of my way that they, so they know that.
0: Now, of all these cities, you know, as you said earlier, so many cheesesteak places and sandwich places in Philly, how is it that you guys ended up getting that slot on man versus food? Because, you know, was it because of your, of your, you know, your your charisma, you know, because of your presence? But how did that happen? Because that's something that is a, is a that's very cool because now it was you and the Knicks and someone else.
1: Well, you know, I always credit one person. You know, I, I give one person the credit for really getting me started in television, especially in the food. end. I was building a store at the Borgata. We were building it and the store was done and we were open and I was there. You know, my son, Tony, God rest his soul. He was there every day and he developed a friendship with Bobby Flay because Bobby Flay loved Tony Luke's cheesesteak. So he would, you know, he, he would eat them and they started talking and they you know they got to know each other and i met bobby a couple times and he was really a great guy and then they tricked me into doing program with baby fight which i had no idea i was doing people asked, you know did you know that i'm like no i really didn't i had no idea when bobby walked in the room at the at the independence hall i think it was where we had that and i thought he was just coming to say hi (laughs) You know what I mean? I didn't know any, I didn't know anything about Throwdown and the show, and it was that show that was so popular with Throwdown. It was one of their top-rated shows that it made put me on notice with the Food Network and the Trappin that Adam Richman was another fan of Tony Luke's Cheesesteaks. You know, he knew the product. He saw you know the attention. He saw the articles and the awards, and you know he would come down. He would eat it. And he loved it, and that's what got us on man versus food. So, yeah, I mean, look, again, it goes back to what I said. He would have not known who we were had we not done all those commercials and got popular for people that were talking about us. And, you know, if they weren't talking about us, we wouldn't have people come down to try the food for us to win the awards that we did. So, uh, again, it's a 50-50 split. Without the popularity, no one knows you're there. I don't care how good your food is. You know, you're only going to get those local people that heard from you word of mouth, and it will never get any bigger than that. Well, now it will because social media is so huge. But back then, there was no social media. They didn't have any of that. It was just word of mouth. So if you didn't have TV and radio or magazines, you were dead in the water. So, you know, and again, all that hype, is great, but if you go to a place and they hype it and it's so good, you're not going to come back. So it was a beautiful 50 50 marriage between the the hype and the, the entertainment factor of Tony Luke's and the food itself.
0: Now, what was the, uh, you guys were in the challenge. What, what size cheesesteak did you make? I mean, I, I forget. It was like giant.
1: It was five pounds. It was five pounds. I ate three quarters of it and I thought I was going to die. And he ate the entire thing. And it was crazy. You know, it's funny. He opted for American cheese when he should have opted for whiz. And I remember talking to him after that. He's like, you know, I should have went with the whiz because the whiz cheese is always melty. Like it's always liquidy. Where American cheese, once it hardens, it goes back to a solid state. And when you're trying to chew that food and you're, you know, you're four pounds in, to a five-pound cheesesteak. Every bite with that cheese feels like you're swallowing cement. You know, with the whiz, it would have been easier for him to go down, as opposed to, you know, as opposed to the uh, American cheese. But it was pretty amazing, and it was. Uh, and let me tell you something. Uh, we have been, we have been dear friends ever since that show. I mean, personally, just very good friends. He's a good man, a very good man and shows like that, and Throwdown with Bobby Flay, and Best Thing I Ever Ate, and Dinner Impossible, and they just all start coming in, coming in, coming in, coming in, I did all these shows, and then nationally, it just propelled Tony Luke's into the spotlight, and just, you know, put us with the big, you know, the big three, I used to say, forever, it was Patch, Geno's, and Jim's, and then all of a sudden it was Patch genos and tony luke's in in notoriety across the country and it was pretty amazing i never thought anyone would ever break that that you know that triad and uh it was pretty it was pretty psyched when that happened because i have an immense amount of respect uh for all of those guys and the work that they did and you know, and even Pat's creating the cheesesteak. I used to always joke, and even in an interview, they'd say, well, how do you feel about Pat's and Geno's? I'm like, well, if it wasn't for those guys, I wouldn't have a job. Right. <laughs> you know, I mean, they, th- those are the, the originals. Those are the, those are the kings of getting the product out. You know, they started it. You know, Pat started it. He created it. And the rivalry between Pat's and Geno's really took that sandwich nationwide. So those guys always deserve the respect that they should always get from everyone, no matter who your favorite cheesesteak place is. Those guys always deserve respect.
0: Well, you know, it's weird because your your cheesesteak has become international. Didn't you have some places in uh, the middle, Middle East or around there?
1: We did in bah- in Bahrain, yes
0: now how does yeah. that happen because it's so it's such a random place you know it's not like, hey yeah, we got one here we got one Ocean City Maryland, we have one in Bahrain you know, it's just like how did that come about and then how did the people well, my partner Tony?
1: Ray Ristelli, Ristelli Foods was doing a lot of work with the military and a lot of work in the Middle East with food, so he had people that knew about Tony Lukes and were very interested in about a shop, and we were partners, so he had the the in with the people overseas, and the store just developed from
0: there. Now, you know, you you talked earlier about acting. Now, you were in Invincible. How did that come about, and did, did people like on the set know you as Tony Luke, or what was the whole gist with that? Because as a Philly fan, you know, we love Vince Papali, and everyone I know watched that movie it was from Philly. What was that like? Was that one of your first big parts?
1: Well, Invincible, I was kind of, you know... I was peaking as far as popularity goes. So the first encounter I got was with uh, Up Close and Personal. That was the first film I did. You know, I had done acting and then quit and then, you know, did the music and then went into Tony Luke's in 92. And in 96, or 97, was approached by Raymond Cruz. Uh, to do an extra role in Up Close and Personal. And that's really a good story. You know, I get on set, and it was I played one of the convicts, so it's just an extra. But, you know, everyone on set knew, you know, who I was as far as the sandwiches go. And it was really funny because I'm, I'm, there, there had to be a hundred and something extras. And uh, Robert Reffer had asked one of the PAs, who is he? And why is everyone on set taking a picture with them? Because <laughs> as soon as I got on set, everybody wanted to take a picture with me. And it was kind of weird, you know, and because all these kids are doing the movie, but yet they want to take a picture with me. So he must have asked, so before I know it, one of the PAs grabs me and says, you know, Mr. Refford would, like to, Refford would like to speak with you. And I said, okay. So I went up and he says, hi. And I said, hi. He was such a wonderful man. And he said, you own a cheesesteak shop, is that it? I said, I do. He said, because you're very popular here today. Everyone's talking about that you're on set. He said, you know, um, how many people do you think is on set, Tony? And I said, I don't know. I don't know, 120, maybe 130 people. I'm not sure. But it was a big scene. It was the you know escape scene from the prison. And he said, uh, would you be able to... If I ordered a cheesesteak for everyone on set, would you be able to deliver it? And I was like, sure. And he peeled out, I'll never forget, he went in his pocket and he peeled out seven $100 bills. (laughs) And he said, is this enough? And I said, yeah. He said, would you mind ordering that for everyone on set today? And he bought everyone on set that day. A cheesesteak. And he took it out of his own pocket. That is so cool. That's, that's great.
0: Now then, so you did that, but then now uh, Invincible, that, did that come up because... Well,
1: Invincible came, I, I had just finished the movie called and Wolf. I'll tell you exactly how Invincible came, It's it's really a cool story. I just finished co-starring with Dennis Hopper and Brian Dennehy and Leslie Ann Warren and Leo Rossi and Giovanni Ribisi and James Marsden. It was a... It was an amazing cast. Um, and I had just finished five weeks doing that film in Pittsburgh. So I get home. I just got done. I get a call from the casting agent, and she said, I have an audition for you for a movie called Invincible. And I was like, all right. And they sent me the sides. And it was, uh, it was one line, and it was for, you know, um, the coach was walking you know, through the tunnel, and I'm one of the guys in the stand, and I yell at him, hey, coach, this isn't California. You better not mess up, something like that. And I said, nah, you know what, I'm going to pass. And they're like, what do you mean you're going to pass? My agent said, you gotta, I'm like, nah, I'm not going to go. I said, I just finished a, a co-starring role with Dennis Hopper. I don't want to do one line in a movie. I don't want to go backwards. Because that's not what this business is. I know this business. You're always judged on your last performance. Now I didn't know at the time that they were gonna cut ninety percent of my scenes from so I wind up being a glorified extra in that movie at the end. But I didn't know that because I was literally had a supporting role. I was in every scene with Dennis Hopper. You know, I had, you know, twenty pages of dialogue and it was It was a big role. It was a big break for me in that movie. So I'm like, nah, I'm not going to do it. They're like, what do you mean? It's one line in a a Disney film. You got to do it. I'm like, I'm not going to do it. I said, but I'll tell you what. There's a character on the bottom of the sides that you sent me named Alex, six foot two. He weighed 130 pounds soaking wet and he had long hair down to his waist. And he was wearing a green cape trying out for the team. And I'm like, that character... I'll do. And they were like, well, you don't fit the character. You're 400 pounds, <laughs> you're five foot eight and 9, and you're bald. Um, I'm like, no, that's the character I want to audition for. And they were like, no. Nah. And, and I said, look, you're my agent. Just give me the audition. What's the difference? You're going to turn down one line in a Disney movie? Yeah, I am. I want to audition for that role. And I remember getting a pair of goggles and a green wig, and I went into Diane Heary's office. And I remember looking at all the people waiting in line to go in, and they were all these long-haired, skinny, you know, and they looked at me like, what the hell are you doing here? Are you kidding me? And I remember going in. I did the audition, and Diane Heary loved it. She was like, oh, my God, Tony, it's hilarious, hilarious. She said, but, you know, that's not the type they're looking for, but I think it's great. Uh, you know, I'm glad that you, excuse me, that you came in. And then about two weeks later, I get a phone call to go back in, and I met with Erickson Kaur, who was the director, and he said, Tony, I have a problem. And I'm like, what's your problem? He said, I have to decide to get an actor that fits the role or let the role fit the actor. Because you know you don't look anything like the, the character. And I said, I remember saying, so you called me in here to tell me I didn't get the job? And he said, give me two more weeks. Don't shave. Don't shave your head, don't shave your face. And just give me two weeks, I'll give you an answer. And then they called me in, and I remember going in, and I put the cape on, and I remember walking out of the trailer for the first time, and all the teachers were out there. And they were dying laughing when I came out of that trailer. And I just thought, I looked like a giant green Barney. If Barney was green, not purple, that's who I would look like. And I thought, all right, let's do this. And I remember going on set, Doing it, and then the director saying, Tony, do me a favor, pull it back. It's too funny. This is not a comedy. And I'm like, Well, yeah, he's not trying to be funny. I remember telling the director, He really wants it. He goes, Yeah, you got to bring it back. So I did it. I didn't listen. Because I had a big fight when I was doing Tent and Wolf with the director, and I thought, You know what? I'm never going to let a director boss me around again. And I'm going to do what needs to be done, or what I, and if he fires me, they, you know, they fire which is a bad attitude. So any actors that are listening to this, don't go by what I'm telling you now. (laughs) So I'm fighting with him, literally. And he got to a point where he said, Tony, here's the deal. If you don't do what I ask you to do, I cannot promise you I won't cut you out of the whole film. And I remember saying to him, I'd rather take the shot of you cutting me than not letting me do the role the way I want to. And I, I did it. And he laughed so hard. He's like, Tony, it's not a comedy, but it's hilarious. The director, he said, come in tomorrow, and let's get you on the field. I'm like, well, I don't have a scene tomorrow. He goes, no, no, no. I'm writing it in. Come in and come to the field. So I remember going, I got him on the field that day, the next day. And I said, what do you want me to do? Because you tend to do whatever you want anyway. (laughs) And I said, well, everyone's hitting this bag, and, you know, they're pushing him. I'm 400 pounds. What if I run and I hit the bag and I can't move him one inch and I just kind of sleep to the ground? And he said, okay, do it. And I did it, and he loved it. And he said to me, okay, come in tomorrow for another scene. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, I need you to come in tomorrow. So I said, look, I got another idea. Why don't I run and hit the bag with everything I got and bounce off of it and just roll on the floor? I said, I'll rip my cape off because I'm mad, because I just fell the first time. I couldn't move him. And he said, I love that. Do it. And I remember running in, hitting it, and then falling and rolling on the ground when I ripped my cape off and go at it and scream, And the next day, he brought me in again, and he told me to, you know, start this little fight. And I was like, he wouldn't start a fight. If you don't get it, he'd be sad. And he went, okay, wait a minute. Pick up the cape that you threw on the floor and walk away all disappointed." dragging the cape behind you, which was his idea. And we did it. And I thought all of my stuff was going to get cut out. And, you know, I went and seen the movie, and not only didn't he cut me, he kept every single scene in that we added. And he did an interview on NBC about a month after the movie came out. And they asked him who he thought the biggest standout was. And he said, Tony Luke Jr. He said that character was, excuse me, his character was hilarious. And it worked. And it was the only, if you notice, it's the only comedy in the film. You know, it's the only funny part of the film. And then about three years later, SAG Awards did a, um, a tribute to small roles like day players that have an impact in films. And it was on the Screen Actors Guild Awards. And I, I wasn't home and people are blowing up my phone when I got home because I had taped it. Well, actually, my brother had videotaped it and they mentioned me and they said, man, Tony Luke Jr. for the role of Invincible for the Cape Clad Eagle fan. So that little tiny role, that five-minute role had such an impact, you know, on on the film and such an impact on me because everywhere I go, even to this day, people screaming to me, hey, I want to be an eagle baby. I want to be an eagle baby because the movie had such such an impact. Now, I get a little insulted, because I was 400 pounds then, <laughs> and I had lost 160 pounds, so I was thinner, and I was really upset that people still recognized me. Right. I'm like, I'm not that big anymore. Why do you still recognize me? Like, oh, it's, it's you, that Kate that Clad Eagle fan is classic, you know, so Invincible was was really a good good movie for, for me, and it was just a great movie, and I became really good friends with Vince Papali, and he's such a good man, and I was so happy when his, you know his life was portrayed on screen.
0: Now, did you did you get to hang out with Wahlberg at all?
1: I did, and, and Mark became a very good acquaintance for over the years. Like every time he was in Philly, I became really, really, really good good friends with Eric Weinstein, who in real life is E. He's the real life E. If you watch Entourage, okay. he's the real life E. And he would always come and see me when he was in Philly with Mark and I would always bring food to them. And I remember one time in particular, my son, Tony, you know, wanted to, to meet with Mark. Well, there were two occasions, wanted to meet with Mark. And, you know, Eric called me up. He said, hey, what are you doing? I said, no, and he, he said, look, Mark's here. He wants to say hi, you know. And I said, well, let me bring some sandwiches up. He's like, well, we don't to open I'm like, I'll bring some off. So I met him at the hotel. And I got there late because of traffic. I got there late. And they literally were heading for a private plane because he has a private jet that he takes. And they were getting ready to take off. And Mark was, you know, I called up. I said, look, he said, we're coming down. And Mark came down and I hugged him. And I said, my son just wanted to say hi. And, you know, Mark stopped what he was doing, told them, tell the plane to wait. And he sat there with my son for at least 25 minutes and talked to him and hung out.
0: No, yeah, and I also read um, on in the Philadelphia Magazine you had sent me um, the article about your son going on set when he wanted to act.
1: Yeah, he wanted to, you know, he wanted to get out of my shadow, and he wanted to do his own thing, and he wanted to be an extra, and I really tried to talk him out of it because, you know, if you're just starting out in film and you want to be an extra, you have to get your, you know, your union card, your SAG card, um, then you got to do. it. It's you know it it's not the greatest job. I mean you know you kind of moved around like cattle. They probably they really don't give you much to eat, and you know you're an extra. So your background, which is what you are, and uh, M Night Shyamalan had wrote written in the happening a Tony Luke's in the background at 30th Street Station. So he was working that location, like the store that they built for the movie set. And I said to him, let me at least tell him that you're my son. He's like, no, 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 I don't want you to tell him. I want to do it on my own. I said, look, Tony, if I tell you that you're my son, you get to hang out. You'll meet them. No, 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 I want to do it. So the very last day of shooting, I go on set, and I see the AD, who's a friend of mine, and I give him a hug. And he's like, what are you doing on set? I'm like, I came to see my son. He's like, what do you mean? I'm like, my son is here. And he's like, your son is here. Why? I'm like, he's in the, He's an extra. Why didn't he tell me? I'm like, he didn't want to tell anyone. And he didn't get a chance to meet Mark again because he was in the background all the time. So I got on set. I saw Eric. And then I saw Mark. And Mark gave me a big hug. And he took me over to see M. Night. And he said, look, remember him from Invincible? Bowl to Kate? He goes, they love this guy in the movie. I smiled. And you know, i taking making a joke. And he's like, yeah, we came the script. And we talk. And I brought my son over, and he just had a blast that day, you know? And they were like, why didn't you, you tell us you were, that he was your dad? You know, we would have hung out. And, and he said, I didn't want to do that. You know what I mean? He was trying to, didn't want to be in my shadow. So he wanted to just do things on his own, and I really respect him for that. But I know he would have had a better time if he would have done it. But he, at least the last day he got to hang out and eat with Mark and eat with the other actors, and, you know, it was a good day for him.
0: Now your son who have passed, and I my, my condolences. He's the reason you're doing a, this hashtag. Tell me more about the hashtag and the program, and just the awareness. I know you're really, you know, you've been really getting stuffed on. I saw you on Good Day Philadelphia. I still call it Good Day LA. It's so funny. Joanne's always like, it's a good, it's Good Day Philly. I go, Oh yeah. So tell tell the listeners about the story behind your son and the hashtag and, and why you're doing this crusade, which it's, I found out it's such a problem. I didn't know living in L.A. because it wasn't a big problem in L.A. But out here, it's amazing when I watch the news.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it's a real epidemic. But my son, for those who don't know, my son died of a heroin overdose on March 27th of this year. And, um, you know, it, it changed your whole life, you know. When you lose a child, it's it, it, it's indescribable. And um, you know, I knew I had to be strong for my family, you know, because you know my ex-wife was really devastated by it, and his two brothers were devastated by it. So I didn't know what to do. People were telling me, you know, start a foundation, you should do a charity, and I just thought, you know, there's a lot of great foundations and a lot of great charities. They don't need another one. Uh, to just take money that maybe could be going to them, you know and i and I don't know anything about it, like I don't know anything about running a foundation or a charity and I, I don't know where I would put the money or who to give it to and i i just didn't didn't feel like it was my place to do that uh so a gentleman came in to the store and he walked over to me it was an, it was an elderly gentleman, and he said, "I just want to tell you I'm sorry." About the loss of your son, and I said, "I appreciate it and he said, If you don't mind did, did he did he have cancer like how did he die and I said, No, he, he didn't have cancer, he died of a of a heroin overdose, and he went, See these damn kids what they do and how they ruin their lives and destroy families and I didn't get mad at him because I understood." his his anger, like just my pain. He was you know, he felt my pain and but I thought, wow, this is what my son meant. Like this is people look at addicts as like just this low life piece of shit that, you know, need to be thrown away like a problem that just needs to be tossed like they're not human. That they people really believe that they have the ability to stop at any time, and they choose not to. And I watched my son struggle and cry. And He has two little girls that he adored, and he loved them, and he spent so much time with them. And so many times he came to me and said, Dad, I don't know what to do. I can't. Please help me. I don't. You know, and it, it just takes over your mind, and it takes over your body. And I'm not going to debate the fact, is it a disease? And is it not a disease? I watched what my son went through. I watched his actions and how it changed, and what he did. And I believe, personally, that it is a disease of the mind, and not of the body, of the mind. And it takes control, and it just doesn't let you go. And I thought, wow, what do I, how do I fix this? Or like, how do I address this? Not even fix this, because I'm too small to fix this, but to address this. And I thought, someone came to me and said, you know, when an addict goes away, to rehab, if they stay in that city, they have a 50% recovery, long-term recovery rate, where normally it's less than 3%. And I said, well, why is that? And they said, well, because they don't go back to the city to the bad influences, the drug dealers they know. And I said, bull, that's a crock. There's drug dealers in every city. And an addict, if he wants to get high, he can get high anywhere. And I thought, what is the difference in another city than here? Well, the difference is they don't know they're an addict there. They're not treated like an addict. They're not looked down upon like an addict. When they go in to look for work, they're not said, oh, that's just that that addict. And when they use the term junkie, which I can't stand, that word is horrific. And it's the exact stereotype that, uh, you know, brown and white is trying to fight. And I thought, the addict is set up to fail. He goes to rehab where he's told that, or she's told, he or she's told that they're loved, they're supported, that whether they're using or they're not using, they are loved, and we're here for you, and we know that it's difficult, so we're going to be by your side. Don't be ashamed to come with... Then they go back to the real world, where they're called weak, and no good, and 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 lazy, and you look what you're doing, and, and then... Everything that they've just gone through gets thrown down the toilet because they come back and society looks at them horrifically. So I thought, what do I do? So we, we had, you know, I, I Googled heroin and brown and white came up a lot. You know, there's three colors of heroin brown, white, and black tar. And, but brown and white were the two main. I was sitting with a friend of mine, Chuck Barrow, and we were sitting down and I said, look, you know, heroin comes in brown and white. I said, I want to incorporate those colors, but how do I do it? Do I do, you know, a brown and white ribbon, a brown and white bracelet, and then maybe we do a hashtag, you know, stop the stigma, you know, uh, stop the heroin stigma with brown and white or, you know, use those cards. He's like, dude, why don't we just use the hashtag brown and white? I'm like, just, he said, yeah, just brown and white because it's the core of what you want to do. And I thought, yeah, because social media is where I need to attack this. Because it, it, to me, it was the social stigma. That is a disease in itself. The disease of the social stigma of addiction. And I thought, that's where my fight will begin. And, and I, you know, I got a call to do Fox 29 and... They said you want to talk about the article about your father and your brother and the the, the trouble and between like no. I want to talk about my son and about the initiative I want to start. And they were like, Okay. And then that aired and within twenty four hours it had almost a million views online. And people were hashtagging Brown and White that they weren't ashamed anymore, that they put you because know, the whole concept of hashtag brown and white is to go on social media and post a picture of your loved one. Tell the world that they were not weak, and they are not a number. They are not just a statistic. That they lived, they struggled, and they died fighting this disease of addiction. And because no one's talking about it. Parents are ashamed. Family members, they speak, and someone was talking when I was going through the struggle with Tony. Because then I would have had someone to talk to, someone to bounce ideas off of, someone to help me understand what was going on with Tony, or, or what did they do that worked, or what did they do that didn't work, that everyone hides, including myself. I didn't want anybody to know that my son, you know, was an addict. I didn't want people to know that. You know, and it was bad. I, I fell into the same category. And I just thought, wow, this is crazy. This has to stop. And... I just started promoting brown and white and it just exploded. And then it kind of started taking off in, in, in Ohio and in, in Georgia, you know, and New York. And people were posting and they were talking about it. Then I got a phone call from the Washington Post to do a story. And then Channel 17 did a story. And, you know, I did this for Tony, I did this for everyone. All of everyone's Tony, if that makes sense. Every family member. I wanted them to speak up. I wanted to give them some closure. I wanted them to understand that there's nothing to be ashamed of. And families were going on Facebook and, you know, mothers who were in their 60s saying, you know, I don't even use Facebook, but this is a picture of my daughter. And I'm sorry. She was not weak. She was a beautiful human being and she couldn't control this. It was difficult for her and she struggled and they weren't hiding anymore. And then people were asking me to speak at at events to let people know, parents know that hey, you know, you can't hide this. Don't hide this. They need you to love them. Sure they're gonna fall or they have fallen. But we need to pick them up. We don't need to enable them. There's a big difference between supporting and enabling a huge difference. It's a fine line, but there's a big difference there. But you have to be very careful not to enable, because an addict can be very persuasive. They're great manipulators. Because when that monster wants to feed, the monster of addiction, when it wants to feed, it will crawl over its own children to get to get fed. So you know, when people say, well, I didn't like my daughter. I didn't like my son. I didn't like my dad or mom because of the addiction. I go, no, you didn't like the addiction. You didn't like the monster. They were still in there. And I saw my son fight every day to come out, the real Tony to come out. But that monster, man, it's so big and so angry and so scary. You know, you need a lot to combat that. And I realized after Tony died that the greatest enemy of addiction is love and support. You just need to know, let them know that you're there. When they fall, you're there to get them treatment. And, and the people go, well, you know, my kid was in rehab 25 times. Well, put him in 26 times. Put her in 27 times. It doesn't matter. You wait for the miracle to happen, and it happens by letting them know you love them. It doesn't happen by picking them in the street and turning your back on them. You know, like, you know, sometimes tough love doesn't work. Most of the time, tough love doesn't work. And again, I'm not saying enable them, but, you know, if they can't stay in that house and they choose to live outside, go see them. Bring them food. Bring them clothes. Tell them they can take a shower at your house. If, you know, if they're nonviolent. Now, I don't don't violence. If they're nonviolent addicts, let them know you're there for them. Tell them you'll take them the treatment again. Tell them that you love them, whether they're using or they're not using. Tell them you know that they're struggling, and and pray every day that one of those days it clicks, one of those days they get the strength to stay away from the monster.
0: Now, because
1: once they die, there's no second chance. And let me tell you something. One guy wrote to me. He said every time my son comes in the house, I got to lock everything up. I got to lock my jewelry, lock my money. I shouldn't have to lock all this stuff up in my house. And I wanted to tell him, you know what? I'd lock up everything to have my son back. And when they're gone, they're gone. I know, Tony. So if it's inconvenient for you to lock up your shit, well, tough. Because the alternative is they're not here.
0: I know, and it's uh, it's 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 awful what happened, but it's it's you know one good thing is you have to sit there and you're you know in his name you're doing something good, and that's the thing you know because you're right there is a stigma and I saw you talk about this before, there is a stigma, and what's amazing is though you know there's something needs to be done because it's it's a high addiction rate and and it, it's something that. This wasn't years ago. This didn't happen, and there's—I don't know if it's because people do the opiates first, but it's really something that has to be addressed. And hopefully, you know, with, with you and your hashtag, it'll bring awareness because that's your whole—that's your whole point—is you want to bring awareness and say it's a disease.
1: It is, well, and thank God. And it's the stigma. You know, I'm not even getting into the politics of a disease or not a disease. I believe that it is, but it's that stigma that holds them back. It's the stigma. You know, an addict needs everything that they can get to fight this monster, and the stigma is a big part of helping them, to get rid of that stigma, to help them, and give them that support, and I gotta tell you, I feel lucky and blessed that God has has seen fit to really make this catch on, Like people really are getting it, people, it is growing at such a huge rate, and parents are finding closure, and, They're talking about it, and they're talking about it with their friends and with other family members. And this is how it starts. This is how you start change, by speaking openly about it, by putting their pictures in the window. You know, I said, you know what, I met a lot of drug dealers in my day, and they always have the same attitude. Hey, Tony, it's just business. You know, people sell beer. I sell drugs. What's the difference? You know, you sell food. I'm just giving people what they want. But what they don't understand, they believe it's a choice, and it isn't. And it, I believe it is a disease. And I, you know, I want to tell dealers, you know, would you would you go in the corner and sell AIDS to someone? Would you sell cancer in a vial and give it to someone? They're like, no, man, I wouldn't do. No, yeah, but you are, because you're feeding into an illness. You're feeding into a disease. And I said, you know what I hope? That everyone puts a picture of their loved one in their window with a brown and white ribbon so that when these dealers drive down the street, that they see that it's not a business, that it's not just business, and they're not just providing a service, that every single face in that window they contributed to putting in the ground, that that pain that every one of those family members feel they help do that. They contribute to that, and I know it sounds naive, but I pray that maybe even if one dealer, just one, looks in those windows and says, "You know what, man, I, I'm not I'm not contributing to this anymore. I'm walking the fuck. I'm walking away from this." If one dealer does that, that's a miracle. And if can you imagine the addicts that walk down the street knowing that not just their family, but other people support them? and want them to get better, and love them too. Because that's what it shows. Every time they put a picture in the window, or they hashtag brown and white on social media, and they put up a picture, they're telling every addict that sees that, that, hey, we support you, and we love you, and we want you to get better. Your family loves you. We love you. It's a pain that no one should feel losing a loved one, and that we're here for you to get better.
0: Well, that's and.
1: It's, it's growing, Steve. It, it, it's really, really growing.
0: Well, that's awesome, man. You know, and, and I'm glad you came on and got to talk about it. And so people can hashtag brown and white on any social media, right? They can do Instagram. They can do Facebook. They can do Twitter. It's everything. everything.
1: Any, any form of social media, just hashtag brown and white and put your loved ones up there or just hashtag brown and white and say, hey, we support ending the stigma of addiction. You are loved. You know, like that's, you know, and that, and that's, that's what we need, and they need to talk about it and just talk and talk and talk, and that's how we'll get rid of this state.
0: That's awesome. Well, I want to thank you for coming on, Tony. I'm glad we got to take take the time to talk. It's always a pleasure talking with you. So, people, please go on your social media. And now you're, so you're at Tony Luke Jr., your, your Twitter?
1: My Twitter is at Tony Luke Jr., Instagram. And we also have a um, at Brown and White U.S. for Twitter, and we have an at Brown and White or just Brown and White USA on Facebook and you know, to find out more information about We don't have a website. We're not a foundation. We don't accept any money. We're just pushing the initiative because it's your initiative. Make Brown and White your initiative. You know, if you're in a different city and you're hearing this podcast, let people know champion Brown and White in your city. You know, hashtag it, let your foundations know to get behind it, you know, talk to people to get behind it, because this is not my movement, it's our movement, because everyone is involved in this struggle.
0: So you heard them, people, so follow it. So yes, do that, and check out, and do your hashtag brown and white. Get the word out, get the awareness out. Also, uh, for Twitter, you can follow me, at Cooper Talk. I'm Steve Cooper, this is Cooper Talk, presented by Walk My Mind. You guys have a wonderful day.